Good morning again. Uh, turn with me in your Bibles, if you would, to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 9. <clears throat> Our sermon text for this morning will be Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 31. Before we go ahead and read that together, let's pray together. Our Father, we do pray that you would speak uh, right now to us through your word, uh, that we would, uh, by the work of your spirit, understand your word and receive your word and be changed by your word. Father, we pray that you will be glorified uh, in this moment, that you would work in our hearts by your Spirit, uh, that you would shape and fashion us to your glory. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Acts chapter 9, beginning with verse 1. But Saul... Still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him to Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise, and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. And Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you have come, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. 
When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. But their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him, but his disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, and they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord, who spoke to him, and how at Damascus he has preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord, and he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. When the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. Have you ever tried to change uh, ever tried to change uh, something in your life? Try to do a, a 180, uh, turn about, stop one thing, start another, give up something, uh, maybe something like Netflix for even just a few days, or, or Facebook, or Twitter, or chocolate, or caffeine, or alcohol, or drugs, or porn? If you've ever tried to give something up, uh, you've probably failed, right? Fa- failure is a part of trying, after all. Um, And change, even little change, is hard. Ever tried to to get up just a half hour earlier every day? Ever tried to read more for self-improvement? Ever tried to start getting more exercise? How long did that last? You know, they, they tell me that if you can get a habit going for 21 days, it'll stick. I feel like I always get to about 22 and that's it. I don't know why that is. Um... If you became a Christian, how did that change happen? Everybody's story is a little bit different. For some, it is is gradual. Uh, A friend invited them to church. Uh, They slowly started coming, reading, believing. Uh, For others, it is sudden, a momentary confrontation on a street corner. Uh, For some, it is natural. Uh, They heard the gospel and they believed. For others, it is messy. Uh, They argued and argued and argued until they finally conceded to King Jesus. In fact, I had a friend uh, tell me once that uh, he was never going to become a Christian because he was too proud. He's an elder in his local church today. Um, C.S. Lewis says he was brought into the kingdom kicking and screaming. Others grow up in the church and never know a day when they didn't know the Lord. I became a Christian in college. Uh, I had spent my childhood uh, trying to make myself happy, trying to take away the the sadness after my parents' divorce and the loneliness of feeling like an outsider. And uh, I spent most of high school self-medicating with shoplifting and comic books and video games and parties, what I thought of as typical teenage stuff. And then my freshman year in art school, some friends invited me to church and I began to hear about Jesus and it just made sense. Of course, I realized, hey, if this makes sense, my life is going to have to change. And I began to pray and ask God to change me. Everybody's story is a little bit different. And yet, everybody's story is a little bit the same. There are certain things that must take place in order for anyone to become a Christian. Uh, This morning, we're going to look at Paul's or Saul's conversion. Paul and Saul, it's two different names of the same person. 
<clears throat> and uh, Saul, you may remember at this point in the story, is a persecutor of the church. He arrests Christians for a living. Uh, in fact, he was there giving his approval uh, when Stephen was stoned to death for his faith in Jesus. But God is going to make Paul the greatest missionary the church has ever known. And this chapter, chapter 9, these first 31 verses are the turning point. We're going to look at three things about Paul's conversion that, that also ultimately must be true of us one way or another. Uh, none of these things, of course, are things that you do, uh, but things that Jesus does. Um, what we can do, of course, is place ourselves at Jesus' feet and seek his face and wait on his mercy and grace. So how does Jesus bring us into his family? Well, uh, first Jesus confronts us. And then he convinces us and then he calls us to himself or commissions us uh, for the work that he has for us. So we're going to look at those three things, uh, confronted, convinced, and commissioned. First, confronted. Uh, we, we meet Paul, uh, whose Jewish name was Saul. And again, I'll, I'll probably bounce back and forth between those two during the sermon, so don't be confused. Saul, Paul, same person. We meet him again in verse 1. Uh, the last time we saw him, Saul, had just approved of Stephen's execution. And then he began to enter house after house, Gestapo-style, dragging off men and women to prison. And then uh, we get to verses 1 and 2 of chapter 9. We're told, But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women... He might bring them bound to Jerusalem. See, Saul so hated Christians that he was not content to root them out of Jerusalem or Judea, but he headed to Syria as well to find those who had fled from his wrath. Well, on the way to Damascus, suddenly there is this blinding light and Saul falls to the ground and hears a voice, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Of course, Saul's question is maybe natural. He says, well, who are you, Lord? And the voice says, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Now, Paul relates this story twice later in Acts. It's recorded three times in the book of Acts, which kind of shows the importance uh, that Luke uh, sub, uh, puts to this story. Uh, and uh, later on, we're told that those who are with him hear the, the, the voice, or we're told here, those who are with him hear the voice, they hear the sound, chapter 9, verse 7. Uh, but later on, we're told that they don't understand what the voice is saying, according to chapter 22, verse 9. Uh, they see the light, according to chapter two, 22, verse 9, but they don't see the person, chapter 9, verse 7, right? So um, this is not Saul's imagination, right? They all see a light, and they all hear a sound, uh, though for Saul's companions, both of those are indistinct. Uh, it's just a light and a sound. But Paul sees the risen Jesus and hears his voice. Now, uh, you may wonder, we're just told here that Paul sees a light around him. How do we know that Paul sees the risen Jesus in that light? Uh, well, again, in Acts 9, verse 7, we're told that his companions see no one. We presume that it must be said that they see no one because Paul saw someone. Uh, but of course, later in the same chapter, verse 17, Ananias will say, uh, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road. 
So Ananias says, Jesus appeared to Paul. And then in Acts 22, we're actually told that Ananias further said, the God of our fathers appointed you to see the righteous one and to hear a voice from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. Uh, in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul confirms this by simply saying that Jesus appeared to him like he did to the rest of the apostles. Or in 1 Corinthians 9.1, Paul says, Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? So, so Paul, in this blinding light, sees the risen Jesus and hears his voice. And then he gets up. Though his eyes are open, he now sees nothing because he has been blinded by the light of Jesus. And so they lead him by the hand into the city. And there is this disciple in uh, Damascus named Ananias. And uh, God appears to Ananias in a vision, tells him to go to Saul to lay his hands on him so that Saul can regain his sight. And Ananias, of course, is, is a bit skeptical. He's heard the reports about Saul's wicked deeds and what he came to Jerusalem to do. And yet God reassures him and sends him off. So Ananias goes. He enters the house where Paul is staying. And he lays his hands on him. And he says this in verse 17. He says, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized and taking food, he was strengthened. Now, there's a lot going on in these first 19 verses here. And what is it that we should notice? I wanted to point out, I think, just two things in these first 19 verses, at least. The first is, there's something, I guess the whole thing is amazing, but there's something interesting that happens to Paul in the midst of this amazing story. And that is that he goes blind. Right? Why does Paul go blind? Uh, I mean, why this elaborate play almost, right? Where, where Saul, from the encounter with Jesus, loses his sight only to gain it back three days later. What's the point? Or to put it differently, what, what is Jesus trying to impress on Saul? Well, I think Jesus is trying to impress on Saul uh, something that he often emphasized with the Pharisees in general, which was their spiritual blindness, Jesus calls the Pharisees in the Gospels blind guides and blind fools and blind men. In John 9, uh, Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. The Pharisees responded at that point in John 9, Are we also blind? And Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt, but now that you say we see, your guilt remains. This is actually why it is sometimes harder for moral and religious people to become Christians than immoral and non-religious people. Uh, moral and religious people often think that they see. They think they understand. Paul thought he was a good Jewish kid. People today often think they are good Christians or even good moral atheists. What do they need Jesus for? Their life is all together. Jesus was confronting Saul with his blindness. And Jesus says to us, if, if you say that you can see, you, you're probably blind. Do you know your natural spiritual blindness? Uh, do, do you know that you don't know? 
Have you figured out that you don't have it all figured out? There's more to life than reason and experience and academics can teach you on their own. In fact, sometimes those things get it radically wrong. Do you trust your eyes? It's an interesting question, right? Do we trust our eyes? But, you know, I think we're comfortable saying, you know, we all have blind spots. We'll say that. We use that kind of language, right? Are you willing to concede to Jesus that you not only have blind spots, but that those blind spots are so large that you've been getting life wrong every day, your whole life through? Or that apart from him and his work in your life, you couldn't see at all? Are you willing to acknowledge to him that maybe you don't understand his life life as well as you think you do? Well, there's a second thing to notice here, and that is not only is Jesus confronting Saul with his spiritual blindness, but second, we have here what is really a conversion by confrontation. Notice there's no elaborate preaching of the gospel here, at least not that Luke records. There's just confrontation. Jesus confronts Paul on the road. It is a confrontation of his sin, yes. He says, Saul, Saul, why have you persecuted me? But it, more specifically, it's a confrontation with the person of Jesus. That's what this confrontation is about. Uh, no one comes to faith just because you tell them how big of a sinner they are. Right? Our knowledge of our sin cannot save us. Guilt cannot save you. Uh, sin and guilt are what we need to be saved from. And Jesus is the remedy for sin and the cure for guilt. Now, surely we're not told everything uh, that went on in this conversation, but, but what we need to notice is that from what we are told, Saul's conversion comes not from an elaborate message, but from being confronted by and with the person of Jesus. What causes Saul to make an about face in life? He comes face to face with Jesus. Now, here's what I, what I draw from that, is that we can argue all day long for hours and hours over issues, right? We can, we can talk politics, we can discuss creation, we can argue over science, we can debate when and where and if it is right for Christians to enjoy alcoholic beverages, right? None of those issues will bring anyone to Jesus, if you're not a Christian here, uh, here, here's what I would ask you to do, right? Set aside all of those issues for a moment and ask this question, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? That's the most important question to answer. If, if Jesus is, of course, just a man, a, a dead Jewish rabbi, then you can safely ignore him and move on. That's what Paul had been kind of doing, ignoring who Jesus was and moving on. Uh, But if not, if Jesus is something more, if Jesus has risen from the dead, then maybe you ought to listen. Maybe you ought to figure out who he is and what he has done and what he is doing right now as the resurrected one. Who is Jesus, right? On the road to Damascus, Saul is confronted with his spiritual blindness and confronted with the person of Jesus. Which brings us to what Paul realized to what Paul became convinced of on that road. We're told in in verses 20 and 22 this, 
immediately, immediately after uh, he regained his sight and took food and was strengthened, immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon his name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. What we need to notice is, that, is what Paul is proclaiming, what Paul is saying, what Paul is proving. Verse 20 says Paul proclaimed Jesus, saying he is the Son of God. Verse 22 says Paul is proving that Jesus is the Christ. So on the road to Damascus, Saul is, is confronted with his spiritual blindness. He's confronted with his sin. He's confronted with the person of Jesus. And here is the conviction that he comes away with. Jesus is the Son of God, the Messiah. Now, here's what that means, right? For uh, the, the phrases Son of God and uh, Messiah or Christ, uh, at least for most Jews at that time, were really rough synonyms. Uh, meaning that the Christ, the Messiah, means anointed one. And uh, in the Old Testament, prophets, priests, and kings were all anointed with oil as a sign of their entrance into office. Uh, it was a part of their ordination, so to speak. Uh, oil was a sign of the Spirit's presence equipping them for their task. David was anointed as king in, in 1 Samuel 16. Uh, and God promised David that he would raise up for David a son who would be king whose kingdom would be established forever. And, and of that promised son, God says in 2 Samuel 7, I will be to him a father, and he will be to me a son. It's because of that that... that uh, <clears throat> this is why the Messiah, it's because of that that the Messiah could be called Son of God, right? Because the son of David, the Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one, the king, God says would be called the Son of God. Now, in Israel, of course, they didn't believe that God could have a, a son, and so that title for them was merely symbolic. So they thought. Here's what Paul realized, though, on the road to Damascus. On the road to Damascus, Paul realizes that the Messiah had come and that that title is not merely symbolic. And there are a couple of questions we need to ask, right? How did Paul realize that the Messiah had come? He's proclaiming Jesus is the Christ from this one momentary encounter. How, did, how does Paul realize this? And, and what does it mean that the Messiah has come for Paul? And why did he realize that that title is not merely symbolic? You see, the, the crucifixion of Jesus was proof positive to every Jew that Jesus was not the Messiah. The Messiah was meant to come and reign to defeat Israel's enemies, to bring freedom from slavery and death, to bring peace. On the cross, Jesus was defeated by his enemies. He received not freedom and peace, but death. The Messiah was meant to be the blessed of the Lord, but on the cross, Jesus was cursed by God. As it is written in the Jewish law, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. How could this cursed and crushed failure be the Messiah? Here's what Paul says of the Son in Romans chapter 1. He says, Jesus was descended from David according to the flesh, but was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. 
See, the, the cross declares Jesus to be conquered and cursed. But the resurrection, right, the, the resurrection changes all that. Suddenly, Jesus rises victorious, not conquered, but conqueror. And when Paul sees Jesus risen from the dead, he realizes that Jesus has not come merely to defeat Rome, but to defeat death. See, the problem with Israel's hopes was not that they were too big, but that they were too small. They wanted political freedom, freedom from a foreign government. God sent Jesus to bring freedom from death itself. God sent Jesus as Messiah, yes, to establish God's kingdom, God's rule in the present age, but in anticipation of the fullness of that kingdom to come. Jesus comes to bring something no earthly ruler ever could, hope. Hope for this life and for the next. Hope of an earthly kingdom, but an earthly kingdom that would never end because of the resurrection. Jesus has come as the Messiah to defeat death and bring life and hope and establish the earthly kingdom of God now and forever. Why do I say, though, that, that Paul realized in this moment that the title Son of God was not merely symbolic? The title Son of God for the Messiah, for this conquering king, meant more than just Son of David. Well, look at how the appearance of Jesus is described. Verse 3, a light from heaven flashes around Paul. When Paul is describing that light later on in Acts 26, he says he saw a light from heaven brighter than the sun. This blinding light in Scripture is almost always a manifestation of the glory of God. Right At Sinai, we're told the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of all the people of Israel. When the tabernacle was, was built, the, the, the God's glory light fills it so that no one can enter. When Moses comes down from Sinai in Exodus 34, Moses did not know, we're told, that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. See, God's glory light shines so brightly upon Moses that, that like a glow-in-the-dark toy, right, God's glory had, had been absorbed into Moses, as it were, and was shining wherever he went. God's presence is so associated with light uh, that the psalmist cries out in Psalm 4, Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. And John simply tells us God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. So God is light. But how do we know that Paul makes this connection, that he connects the light of Jesus' face that he is seeing on the road to Damascus with the light of God's face? Well, Paul himself makes the connection explicit in 2 Corinthians 3 and 4. He says, uh, on the one hand, it's true, Moses saw the glory of God at, at Sinai and his face glowed for a time. But, Paul goes on to say, we have the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Notice the light of the glory of Christ. Now, for a Jewish person, that would be blasphemous. God's glory is the light. Paul says, Jesus' glory is the light. He goes on to say that God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God, where? In the face of Jesus Christ. That's where we see the glory of God. The psalmist says, lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. And Paul says, 
the light of the glory of God is seen in the face of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the light of the glory of God. He himself claimed that to see him is to see the Father. To see Jesus is to see the Father. And so if you want to know God, do you want to know God? If you want to know God, right, look to Jesus. He is the Son of the Father. To see Jesus is to see the Father. To to, to see His light is to see the light of God. To see Jesus' glory is to see the glory of God. To look upon Jesus' face is to see the Father's face. This is what Paul realizes on the road to Damascus. This is what he had become convinced of, that Jesus is the conquering Messiah who conquered not by avoiding death, but by defeating it. And that Jesus is therefore the one who establishes God's kingdom, his rule on earth, makes all things new on the last day. But Jesus was no mere human Messiah. He is the Son of God. God in the flesh. He is the light of the glory of the Father. Saul was convinced, and his life would never be the same again. So conversion to Jesus happens as we are confronted with the person of Jesus. And as we become convinced that he is the Messiah, the Son of God, who comes to take away the sins of the world. But life can never stay the same after that, which brings us to our third point about commission. Uh, I want to go back just for a minute to verses 15 and 16. Uh, Verses 15 and 16 say this. uh, The Lord says to Ananias, Go, for he, Paul, is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. What is Saul's commission here? What does Jesus call him to? Uh, verse 15, he's, he, we're, uh, he's told that he would uh, carry my name before Gentile and Jew alike. Verse 16, that he would suffer for the sake of my name. Paul is called to speak and suffer for Jesus' name. And yet that, that doesn't fully capture it because uh, Jesus here doesn't just say Paul is to speak of Jesus' name, though he is. But Jesus says he's to carry my name. Uh, Now, I'm told that to carry a name uh, is really an idiom in Greek that just means to make it known. Um, Jesus says, Paul is a chosen instrument to carry my name, right? To make my name known. Uh, And yet it's clear that Paul, uh, the way he later interpreted this, um, was not merely in terms of using words to share information, right? When he thinks of bearing Jesus' name, he's not merely thinking of words, uh, immediate, immediately after, uh, in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 6, immediately after saying, God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, 7, but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Uh, now, the word for jar there in 2 Corinthians 4, 7 is the same as the word for instrument in Acts nine fifteen. Paul is a chosen instrument of Jesus as a jar of clay. Now, Paul as instrument or jar is weak, he says. But by his very weakness, he shows God's power. To 
carry the name of Jesus was not, did not merely mean speaking. It did mean that, but it not, didn't merely mean speaking. But our very weakness as we carry that name says something to the watching world. Here's what Paul says further in 2 Corinthians 4. He says, But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way but not crushed, perplexed but not driven to despair, persecuted but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. Now, here's what I think is going on here. When Jesus says uh, that Saul will be a chosen instrument to carry his name, and that Jesus is to, will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of his name, uh, those are not two distinct things. He's not saying he'll be a, a chosen instrument to bear my name and he's going to suffer. Like, like point one, point two. Carrying Jesus' name actually causes suffering, and we carry Jesus' name as we suffer. Here's the point. If you're a Christian, you, you bear the name of Jesus. Now, uh, that, that doesn't mean you must be some slick evangelist who gathers and woos the crowds. That's, that's not what it's getting at. It means that as you go through life, especially as you suffer well, you represent Jesus in all that you do. Yes, as you have opportunity, openly state the truth. That's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians uh, 4. But know that whether that opportunity comes or not, you represent King Jesus. You are the light of the world, Jesus says. How can we be the light of the world, right? If Jesus himself is the light of the world, well, because we bear Jesus' name in our bodies. We carry this treasure in jars of clay, weak, imperfect, broken as we may be. And we are weak, imperfect, and broken. Jesus comes as Messiah to put the world right. We don't have to have it all together, we don't have to fix other people. We don't have to fix ourselves. That's what Jesus comes to do, right? Let him do his job as the Messiah. Nevertheless, when Jesus calls us to himself, he, he doesn't just call us to himself. He commissions us to bear his name. Now, this scares me a little bit, bearing Jesus' name, representing him. Uh, that, that, fear, that, that fear is why I don't want a Jesus... Uh, fish bumper sticker on my car, right? Uh, there are other reasons, of course. There are aesthetic reasons and uh, maybe reverential reasons. I don't know. But the, the, but the real reason is I know how bad of a driver I am. Uh, it, it, I'm bad, okay? And the last thing I want, right, is a Jesus fish on my car so everybody knows that that, that stupid Christian can't drive. Uh, I don't want to represent Jesus when I'm driving. And yet the truth of the matter is, I am. Uh, in our, in, wherever I am, wherever we go, right, we, we represent him. Uh, in our classrooms and in our workplaces, in our homes and in our neighborhoods, we represent the Son of God, the Messiah, King Jesus. We don't uh, represent him well, of course, by being perfect people. That's, that's not the point. We represent him by being jars of clay, 
that carry inside the treasure of Jesus' name. Can I encourage you, though, that, that, that in your job, right, do your job in such a way that it becomes a ministry of Jesus to others. In your work, you bear the name of Jesus. Serve others in your work. In your studies, do your classwork in such a way, both ministering to, to those around you, bearing his name into your classroom, but also seeing your studies as preparing you for serving Jesus in the world where you will continue to bear his name. In your homes, right, love your children in such a way that it becomes a bearing Jesus' name into your home. In your neighborhoods, love your neighbors, which means get to know them, right, so you can serve them in such a way that it is a bearing Jesus' name into your neighborhood. And even when those things become hard, and they will, maybe especially when those things become hard, think on Paul's words. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Though we might be afflicted or perplexed or persecuted or struck down as Paul was, we are not defeated. We suffer with Jesus that his life might be seen through us, that his life might be seen through us. That as we trust in the blood of Jesus, as we delight in the Father's smile, as we live by the Spirit and rely on the power of the Spirit, as we hope in the resurrection to come and as we serve others as Jesus served us sacrificially, right? people will see in us his life. Right? Our, our lives will sparkle, not because we are somehow uh, made of some beautiful, precious stone, but because the treasure within will poke through. We will have that opportunity to point people to him, our Savior, the treasure of life, the light of the world. Let's pray. Our Lord Jesus, we confess that you are the Christ, the King who has come to put things right, the King who has defeated our greatest enemy, sin and guilt and death in the cross and in your resurrection. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would help us to see who you are in all of your glory. Help us to, to worship you as the risen king. Help us to worship you as the son of God. I pray that out of that we would go forth and we would let your light shine. That we would bear your name into our homes and classrooms and workplaces and neighborhoods that we would represent you, that we would point people to you. We pray that you would do this by your Holy Spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.